0: colleagues and emotionally developing children, welcome to another episode of Brain Buzz. We're your hosts. I'm Kyle. And I'm Drake. And today we are joined by Letters and Science Distinguished Professor of Psychology and Professor of Anthropology, Pediatrics, Neuroscience, and Public Affairs at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, Laboratory Director of the Child Emotion Lab at the Waisman Center at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, Dr. Seth Polak. Welcome to the program. Thank you very much. I appreciate you having me. Oh, you're. We're delighted to have you. Uh, question for you: Out of all that, is there anything you are not a professor of?
1: <laughs> I think the real problem is that no one department wants to have to take full responsibility for me. <laughs> you know, this this sort of gets everybody off the hook. <laughs> everybody's like oh it's not our problem exactly
0: <laughs> well i mean i i get to know you just chatting before we started recording uh i, I don't see what they could possibly not want to <laughs> how they could possibly not want to have you on board so
2: yeah so thanks for coming on we were like c- so I just, we gotta jump into it because we're really excited to talk about your work today. We have the luxury of having a sneak peek into your work because you did a, a recent talk for UBC uh, and a colloquium a conversation about your work on how children learn emotion. So let us know what are we going to be talking about today on
1: today's podcast. Well, the the big question really is where does it all come from? Um, how do we how do we understand what happiness means? Uh, how do we figure out? Uh, whether somebody is angry at us or not. Uh, These are actually really complicated things, but um, when development works right, when everything is neurologically normal, it just seems like these things emerge, and babies uh, and very young children seem to master uh, understanding of things like happiness, anger, disgust, surprise, fear. Um, Even our pets seem to understand these emotions. So it can look like it's really easy but we don't actually understand much about where it comes from.
2: There's a lot of people in the world that I think that don't know how to how to, to read emotions very well. And you're all, you're always talking about like, you know, this person can really read a situation or really read emotions really well. What makes someone so good at doing it versus others that, you know, might you might consider to be doing it poorly?
1: Well, we can certainly think of uh, emotional competence and uh, ability to reason about emotion. I call it emotion reasoning. Um, we can certainly think about this skill in the same way that we think about other skills. So, for example, I can play basketball. I cannot play basketball well <laughs> by any means, um, and I I can I can cook really well. Um, Actually, it's my hobby. I think I cook really, really well, but I'm certainly not a star chef. And I think we we think about these kinds of skills with reading ability, with mathematical ability, Uh, And I think the same is true for emotion. There's a big range. um, And sort of at the bottom end of that range, we would consider things like pathologies or problems where there's sort of a gross impairment where even sort of basic skills uh, don't seem to be developing appropriately. And then at the other anchor are these amazing people where we say, oh, my gosh, she's got such amazing social skills. Uh, And then then the rest of us kind of fill in the rest of that big gray middle uh, being sort of a little better, a little worse. Maybe some days a little better, maybe on a bad day a little bit worse. Uh, But I think underlying this uh, tends to be people's ability to read context. Um, oftentimes, when we think about emotional skills, we think just about well, looking at somebody's face and trying to figure out what what their face is revealing. But oftentimes, when people have good emotional skills and good emotion reasoning, what they're really able to do very quickly is read the room, um, look at. Uh, what somebody's doing with their body, what their posture is, what they're actually saying, keep in mind what just happened, what else is happening, who else is there, and really be able to pull all of that together to make an accurate inference about what another person's feeling, and actually a pretty good prediction about what might happen next or what they could do to change what happens next. Absolutely. That reminds me, and
2: I think I, I, I love that. It reminds me of uh, the Amanda Knox case. I don't know if you're familiar with the Amanda Knox.
1: I do. In fact, a good friend of mine is, is a writer who wrote, uh, who wrote the best selling book about the case.
2: Yeah. I, I, I think it's, it's so interesting because, because of the way for, for viewers that aren't familiar with it. I'm listening. I've, I've recently read Talking with Strangers. Uh, and in that book, uh, uh they talk he talks about how Amanda Knox doesn't really show her emotions the way that you would typically imagine someone would show their emotions. So uh others just had a really hard time reading what she was what her emotions were and it, and they assumed she was guilty because of her abnormal uh emotions. So I think that's really interesting and just, you know, maybe you're not reading them correctly or maybe they're not showing emotions that they usually show. Uh and so there's a lot of complexity that goes into reading emotions and understanding and maybe even admitting the correct emotions, right?
1: And it's not just the famous high-profile cases, but um, this really happens all the time. We have sort of a cultural script, which is almost a stereotype of what emotions should look like. We have some idea of what people should look like when they feel guilty or what people should look like when they feel sad. But those are just stereotypes. They're not at all um, a representation of all the different ways Um, That people can act in different situations. And so one one way in which this ends up becoming a real travesty is when there are cultural differences. Um, And so there have been court cases where the defendant is from a different culture than the majority Um, running the proceedings, and people feel that somebody's, a defendant's behavior uh, doesn't look like they feel badly. They don't look like Mm -hmm. they feel remorseful, but they might actually be acting in a way that is appropriate for their culture. Um, This is also true, you can imagine this in a work setting, where uh, someone might be doing a job interview and we have a stereotype in our head of what someone should be saying and doing and looking like if they were really interested in the job Uh, but of course people can uh, move their faces and their bodies in all different kinds of ways so for example Um, Sometimes uh, people, when they're showing they're really eager and they're interested, they smile, they lean forward, they open their eyes more, and that's kind of our stereotype of someone who's really engaged. But it could also be that during a job interview, uh, someone is really thinking hard about how to answer a question, or they're thinking about multiple angles, and maybe they furrow their brow. Um, and they sit back a little bit, they're actually very engaged and they're really interested in the position, but they might look angry or negative or something like that, but that's not at all the person's internal experience. So we have to be very careful about the kind of inferences and conclusions that we draw because it's not diagnostic. There's no one feeling that maps onto one way to move a face. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
0: Seth, this reminds me of... um... I th- I think it's Paul Ekman's six emotions. Is that mm-hmm. is that kind of what we're talking about here in terms of having almost like stereotypical expressions that that we associate
1: with with certain emotional feelings? Or, or... absolutely, this was a huge breakthrough in emotion science in the 1960s. Uh, Paul Ekman and his colleagues went around the world and they showed uh, people in different cultures, uh, photographs of people posing different kinds of emotions. And what they found is that wherever they went in the world um, and they showed these big black and white photographs, even when they went to cultures where the the people in that culture didn't have a word that maps onto the English word happy or the English word sad, they argued that in general, people label happiness, happy face, looking faces as happy. And uh, they came up with this short set, happy, angry, sad, fear, surprise, disgust. Um and that they, the argument here is that these are really innate, these are cross-cultural, all human beings um, have these emotions. And then a few years later in the early 1970s, a developmental psychologist named Carol Lazard started studying these emotions in newborn infants. And he argued that newborn infants were showing these same small set of emotions that Paul Ekman discovered Um, a few years earlier and the argument was, well, these are just in the human brain and all we have to do is wait for the brain to get bigger. And as our brain grows, these emotions uh, start to emerge kind of in the same way that we grow teeth. We don't have to do anything. The environment doesn't matter. Uh, These are just sort of part of the human genome. And as we mature, they're expressed. But that's an old view.
2: (laughs) Yeah, let's talk about Let's talk about your work in how children learn these emotions and how to read these emotions. I think it's really interesting. I obviously want to talk about, you know, reading the room because I think everybody can relate to a time in their life where they haven't read the room correctly. uh, Or they were a part of a situation where someone didn't read the room and their emotions didn't match on to where they were, right? Um, what What are the perspectives that you take, the newer perspectives on how we learn emotions then?
1: Well, one thing that really fascinates me, um, and this is something that I'm really just starting to learn more about myself, is uh, this, this idea that when most scholarship uh, around the world is published in English, um, and so even research done outside of North America um, tends to use English in the laboratory. And it's interesting to just stop and reflect a little bit about how when we talk about emotions we're talking about emotions with English words and uh, emotion concepts that map onto concepts that we have in English. But it's interesting, I think, to think about, well, what about all these other languages of the world that don't have, you know, the same emotion words that we do and that have words that open up concepts for different ways of feeling um, Mm -hmm. that are very, very rarely studied my favorite one that I learned recently. I'm not gonna say the word because I can't I can't pronounce it right, but there's a, a word in Indonesian, and it means that feeling when somebody else gets hurt and you feel badly for them, but you also find it funny, and you <laughs> laugh, but you put your hand kind of over your mouth because you know you shouldn't really be laughing.
2: Mm. And,
1: and as you can imagine, this is something that like preschool age children who speak Indonesian understand like they're in preschool and a kid was running to go do something and they trip and they like fall flat on their face. And you know, like somebody just got hurt and that's not the kind of thing to laugh about, but it's kind of funny. (laughs) You you kind of chuckle and you're both like amused by it, but feeling a little badly that you're finding yourself amused by it. Um, Well, that's a feeling and we have no English word that maps onto that.
2: Well, I mean, America, America's home video, funniest home video, made millions off of that feeling. I think.
1: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> That's
0: true. Isn't, isn't that like to me? That sounds like the basis of uh, of slapstick comedy, almost. Where you're like, "Ooh," but you know, you you, you chuckle about it because it is funny. Um,
1: but we don't have a right, word. That, yeah, that we that yeah, we don't. Yeah, we don't. Yeah. And, and and of course, there's there so many famous ones. You know, there's so many. Every every language has words that just don't translate outside of the language very well. Um, and of course, everyone loves to use the German example of schadenfreude, uh, which is, you know, that feeling of feeling kind of happy when something bad happens to someone that you don't really like. Um, and um, yeah, it, it's just, it it's, for me, it's a good lesson of remembering that there are a lot more emotions and possible feeling states out there uh, than what's accessible, particularly if you're only speaking one language.
2: And really interestingly, Seth, I think, you know, being able to read someone's when they're feeling those emotions, those unique emotions that we don't even have words for, you know, how do we get to that point where you can read that versus, you know, someone actually genuinely feeling bad for someone?
1: Right. This is. I think this is for for me as a as someone who studies children and human development. To me, what you just asked is like the sixty four <laughs> thousand uh, dollar. It could be sixty four thousand Canadian too. Um, the the thing here is, let let's think of something just as an example for your listeners. Think of something that's really obvious, like a smile. Right. Um, typically, we smile when we feel good. And in general, uh, when we see another person smiling, if you didn't know anything else, you just looked at someone, you looked up, they're smiling at you, you would think, thumbs up, this is a, this is a good situation, right? Yeah. And it is true that it is, it's probably the case, there's no way to actually measure this, but it's probably the case that most times when you see somebody smiling, they're signaling something positive and they're probably signaling that they're happy, or maybe that they're being welcoming towards you. But sometimes um, we smile when we're angry, uh, particularly when we want to mask that, or sometimes when we're irritated. Uh, I've seen, we've all seen people who are sort of trying to keep their cool and um, feeling like someone is sort of talking too much or being really obnoxious and you kind of smile because you're waiting for your opportunity to kind of jump in and put them in the right place. Uh, We can smile when we're nervous. Um, Sometimes we smile when we really have to go to the toilet. Um, We can smile when we're being condescending. Um, We can smile when we're being sexually predatory. Um, So, in fact, there are all of these different ways in which this one kind of facial movement that we all think is so easy to read can mean a lot of different things. And the only way to disambiguate what's going on is to actually use our attentional systems and our memory systems to pull in lots of different things that are also happening at the same time and our thoughts about, well, when are other situations when these kinds of things have all happened together. And that's the way we can actually read an emotional situation correctly. And that's really hard.
2: Yeah.
1: And we do it it in a split second. That's what's really cool. Right? Yeah. Because you have to
2: make a decision as to whether or not that smile is uh, a genuine smile, because they're happy to see you, they like you, or they're uncomfortable, and they're smiling so that you'll kind of like take it easy or something like that, right? Like there's so many different interactions that can occur in a split second.
1: When you've actually added a whole other layer, so all the examples I gave, I think, were smiles that were completely genuine, but mm. just had different meaning. And then you've added on that extra layer of, well, now we also have to figure out if an emotion is real, right? Um, is is someone is someone just being polite? Is someone masking their emotion? Um, and so that adds like a whole other backdrop. Um, uh, to to the whole complex situation as well. So uh, let's assume that people are being genuine. They can still smile in all different kinds of situations.
2: Right. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you can smile when you're sad, right? I mean, I think like I think of like even grieving, right? I, I think that's such an interesting emotion. That I mean, there's so many emotions that can go into it and so many indications that you're dealing with it differently, right? You can have people that are smiling, people that are crying, uh, people that are angry. There's so many different ways to respond to that. And how do you, you know, map that onto the fact that these people are grieving? If, if you have a group of people that were all smiling, one was smiling, one was crying, and one was angry, how would you know what the context was if you did, you're, you're removed from that context,
1: right? Exactly. That that that's a really great example. The other thing that children have to figure out, which um which is is a, a really difficult learning problem as well, is sometimes when we're in the laboratory or when we're having a discussion like this, we sort of like talking. About one emotion at a time, like is someone grieving or is someone happy or is someone sad but if we think about most situations that most of us find ourselves in kind of everyday like human you know vicissitudes of life mm-hmm. it's kind of rare that we would be in a situation where one emotion category really captures uh, what's going on for us so let's imagine yeah. uh, that you you know you have a partner and Let's say you're you're really committed to this partner and have been in a long relationship. Let's say you might have even just bought a house together, right? Uh, and you find out that this person has been cheating on you, not once, but kind of for a long time. It's been going okay. on for a long time. And now I say, okay, I'm going to give you a list of emotion words and you tell me what you're feeling now. But probably... Um, you would, in an, in an experimental task in the laboratory, sure, you know what the expected answer is, and you would say sad, or I'm angry, or I'm sad and angry. But you'd probably be experiencing, um, sure, you might be angry, you might be sad, you might be hurt, um, you might feel duped, you might feel taken advantage of, um, you you might feel a whole range of different things, either all at the same time, um, or in succession. And so it's kind of hard when we're trying to understand how children understand what other people are feeling to remember that oftentimes there are kind of multiple feelings in complex social situations layered on top of one another. Um, you know, I'm, I'm angry. I'm also feeling humiliated or embarrassed. Um, and so how do, how do we sort of understand what How to respond to someone and what someone might be feeling if we don't take into consideration all of these things happening in an overlapping way, but little kids actually learn this, which is kind of fascinating
2: yeah so so how do you i mean we talk when kids come out of the womb, are they already ready to know all these things or what's going on you know is it's I'm sure the nature versus nurture debate comes into play here where you're talking about you know they're they're taught these things through interactions, or is it just this innate thing, like you like you discussed, that we're just born with it, and we're you know we're likely to understand these these really intricate uh, emotions within the context that they're they're being put in.
1: Yeah, well, <laughs> that, good question. Um, <laughs> I I mean, the scientifically responsible answer is we don't know. But I'm not going to give that answer because <laughs> that doesn't make for an interesting podcast. Um, uh, as 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 your listeners probably know, you know the the big the big debate in Western philosophical thought is nature versus nurture. You know how much of who we are and what we are is our genes or our, or our biology, and how much it is if it is our culture and what we learn, what we learn and what we're exposed to, um, and Uh, This sort of plays out in how we understand language and cognition. And as you pointed out, it it certainly touches on how we think about emotions. Um, I chuckle a little bit to myself and I get a little nervous um, and antsy uh, before I answer this question, because my experience has been when I talk about my view of whether emotions are nature or nurture, I always end up in a situation where uh, friends and colleagues of mine who are nativist and think that there are certainly things that are hardwired into the human brain, they hear my answer and they say that I'm like a rabbit empiricist and I'm not like in any credence to what what could come prepackaged in the human brain, but when I give the exact same answer to friends of mine that are really into culture and learning, uh, then they hear my answer and they think that I'm like a dogmatic nativist. And like, I'm not taking into account all of the social experiences that happen. So I think the answer is, I, my answer probably displeases everybody. So maybe I'm like <laughs> an opportunity offender. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I, I think that the reason that uh, human emotions look so similar in many ways around the world is that in general, humans treat babies the same way. And so oftentimes what can look like cultural differences are really just similarities in in how human beings treat infants and the limited repertoire of behaviors, um, even though what looks to us on the surface level, like huge cultural differences and there are, it just might be that in terms of like interactions with a newborn baby, people are maybe kind of have more limited um, and constricted ways of interacting. And so Uh, what could look like it's actually an inherent part of the infant brain might really be reflecting the fact that everyone around the world is having similar learning experiences at about the same time. Uh, At the same time, um, it's certainly the case that when a little kid is trying to figure out what the heck is going on in a social situation, um, humans know somehow to attend to certain things i mean we we do attend to things like the tone of voice and pitch excursions like whether my voice is staccato and sharp or whether it's smoother and with longer waveforms in my speech that can sound like i'm being really happy um, as opposed to like talking like this kids somehow know to pay attention to tone of voice They somehow know that things that we're doing with our faces uh, matter. Um, But they also know things like it kind of doesn't matter whether I'm standing up or sitting down. It doesn't matter what color shirt I'm wearing. Uh, It doesn't matter what my hair color is. It doesn't matter what jewelry I'm wearing. And so there's a, that's i think the the more innate part is what's constraining our learning what is what is leading us to prioritize certain kinds of information or pay attention to certain things in the environment and just kind of instinctively know that other things in the environment don't really matter uh in terms of making a decision about what somebody else feels because mm. i am have-
2: yeah absolutely no it definitely does i I think an, a question that i I have to ask I know it's a little it's probably a little bit out from from left field here but I've always i I'm currently doing work in uh sexual consent and I think that there's a really interesting kind of uh pairing here where we're talk and i and my thought I'm still trying to develop what I think here um but do you think people are actually misreading emotions or context in these you know these sexual consent interactions, or do you think that they're more overtly ignoring the context and emotions that they are reading? Uh, so that's something that I've been thinking about a lot since, you know, listening to your work. I'm, I'm curious as to your opinion. Obviously, this is all speculation, but uh, and if you're not interested in talking about this, we can also cut it. <laughs> no, it's
1: fine. Uh, but I, I will say that, like, that that's kind of a, you're, you're now asking me to venture into the research area <laughs> of the host, where you clearly know a whole lot more <laughs> than I do. Um, but that's okay. I'm gonna I'm gonna risk it. I'm gonna let's go there. Let's go let's, there. Let's talk
2: uh, like this I mean, even in gray areas, right, Seth. I mean, it doesn't have to be specifically sexual, you know, consent negotiations, but things that are very unique, you know, where you're making a uh you're are you either misreading a con the context and making yourself look like an ass, or are, is it that you're you're Overtly ignoring the cues that you're seeing because you know because you've learned all these things throughout your life to read these emotions. Do you have to be kind of ignorant in that moment to make those those mistakes?
1: My answer would be D, all of the above. <laughs> um, and th- this is what I mean by it. I can imagine situations where uh, there is a there is a power play going on, and somebody doesn't care what somebody else's um, intentions or desires are uh, where someone is really just fixated on their own immediate goals. They might not even be thinking about two steps ahead or what's going to happen right afterwards. They're really just focused on an immediate goal, um, almost a bit of impulsivity um, or lack of forethought, lack of metacognition. And so, yeah, they, they, someone might be perfectly able to read um, the, the cues that somebody else is saying and they are choosing uh, not to. These are, I think, in terms of jurisprudence, these are the easiest situations because yeah. it's really easy to hold somebody morally and legally culpable in a situation where they just, you know, in a, in a, in a less loaded situation, there was a no parking sign. I decided I was running late, and I just decided to leave my car there. Um, it's not that I couldn't read the sign, and it's not that I didn't see the sign. I just thought, well, whatever, I'm leaving my car here, maybe I won't get a ticket. Yeah. Um, and that, that's one situation. Another phenomenon is sometimes, and there's a really great literature about attentional narrowing, uh, when we are experiencing different kinds of emotional states, it actually narrows our attention. Um, and so someone could be in a situation where they're only really attending to, and because of that, only encoding some cues from the environment, maybe the ones they want to hear, um, and not, in, uh, not encoding the other ones. Um, so, for example, you can imagine a situation where someone wrongly is processing accurate cues that another person is interested in them or maybe attracted to them, but they are selectively ignoring the fact that they're not saying that they want to have sex with them right now. They're Mm -hmm. only indicating that they find them to be an interesting person. Um, And if you're really just focusing on one of those sets of cues and not processing the other, you're going to get in trouble. And then the third, piece that, that goes into this. you remind your question reminded me of that fascinating literature. I don't know if you guys know this um, but I love this stuff from the 1970s about depressive realism. No no um, And oh it's great stuff. So uh, this work showed that it turns out that what most of us do uh, on a daily basis is we kind of warp reality so that things kind of fit with the way we want to see them. Mm -hmm. Um, and people with depression don't do this. People with depression are actually more realistic, so they are more accurate in judging how many friends they really have. They're more (laughs) accurate in judging whether people really like them or not, Um, and it turns out that it's healthy in some regards to actually really just attend to things that confirm the hypotheses that we want to hold about us and the world. But you can see where this could go wrong. You could see where someone... Um, in, in a situation like the one you described is really kind of constructing a reality where all of the cues are confirmatory and kind of ignoring and, and misreading the cues that uh, run counter to the way you want the situation to be. And human brains do all this kind of stuff. Mm. Yep. The, the
2: that, mental gymnastics to get around <laughs> to what you want, right? Yeah, that's Go
1: I think that's part of the problem and why it's so difficult uh, in many in many cases, at least on many college campuses, to adjudicate um, mm-hmm. these cases, uh, particularly when there aren't when there aren't witnesses, when there are only two people there, um, and and particularly if people uh, if, if people really are only attending to what they've encoded. Um, and that's all that they can remember. That's the reality—is what you attended to and what you encoded into your memory system. Uh, many times, you're left with just two people telling completely different stories.
2: And add substances into the equation again, and then that makes it even more convoluted as well, right?
1: Exactly. Mm-hmm.
2: So, Seth, is there a
0: critical period during which time we 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 as humans need to learn these emotional cues and 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 be able to to really learn? These sorts of things, or, or is this an ongoing lifelong process?
1: Oh, I would love to know the answer to that question. <laughs> um, there, there has been, I'm trying to, I've been trying to look at that question in a couple of different ways. Um, mostly I've been trying, it's actually, obviously that's a really hard question to study in the laboratory. I've been trying to get at this question by looking at children that have had very, unusual emotional experiences, um, you know, things like being raised in orphanages uh, or institutional settings and then being adopted into family environments or uh, children that are raised in very abusive environments or neglectful environments where they're really not treated um, in, in a way or exposed to emotions that are really atypical for humans. And then something about the environment changes uh, to see, if we can detect whether the timing of those interventions or changes um, matters for emotional development. And one of the things that I realized as I was making in my own work a huge mistake, (laughs) it's very daunting (laughs) to actually have to say that in public, Uh, but but, you know, this is how science progresses. Uh, (laughs) I realized that in the previous work that I was doing, I was confusing two different ideas. One idea is this idea of a sensitive period, a time window when humans need a certain kind of input for the brain to develop uh, in the right way or in the normal way. And then when that window closes, we still might learn and we can still use that experience, but that experience doesn't have the same organizing effect on the brain as it would have had it occurred in that window. That's one idea. I think I was trying to study that, but instead, what I was studying was the effects of early experience. And those are kind of like cousins, but they're not the same thing. Um, The effects of early experience means, do the things that happen to us early in our life um, or even a little bit later in our lives, do do they get kind of embedded into who we are, cognitively, biologically, socially, and kind of stay with us? And if so, how does that happen? But that's not a sensitive period, because a sensitive period would mean at a certain point, at an age or a developmental period, that door closes and uh, input is no longer having the same kind of influence. And I don't think that with emotions we see sensitive periods the way we do for auditory processes or, or some aspects of language. But I do think we see effects of early experience, which means as we have experiences in our emotional and social lives, we continue to stay open to having those experiences shape our social and emotional behavior.
0: It's almost, if I'm interpreting this correctly, is that sort of a, um, almost like a plasticity approach in terms of how we're dealing with emotional, uh, emotional distribution within the brain, for lack of a better way of phrasing it? Yeah. What do you mean by plasticity though, Kyle? <laughs> oh, sorry, like uh, so reorganization of of neurons and neural structures in response to outside and external stimulus.
1: Yeah, that that's exactly it. And we we accommodate it, right? Like we we thought we knew something and we learned something else. And then as that new information gets integrated, it it allows us to change the way we're thinking about things. Uh, it allows us to form new associations, new connections. Um, I certainly think that's true uh, for emotions. But I certainly think our that plasticity, that, that learning, um, I believe that there's a m- much stronger evidence that those experiences that happen pretty early in life have a pretty big organizing effect. It's not that we're not open to and sensitive and able to use experiences later in life. It's just that those early experiences and how we, what we start to expect from other people um, and how we come to understand how other people treat us and what we come to expect uh, of ourselves and other people in social interactions, that really seems to stick with us for a very long time, and there's still flexibility, but I'd say a big a big punch from early development as opposed to later development
0: yeah, sort of as though it were getting less malleable, like if you to use a metaphor, like if you'd left Plato out, you know how it, it starts off being really pliable and then over time uh, it's it gets harder and a little harder to work with, Right. Is that?
1: Well, yeah, I, I that is what I'm just going to have to like think about that analogy for a
0: while. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I,
1: I certainly have like a little squishy uh, brain that I like to <laughs> squeeze on my desk when I'm having a tense day, and so I can completely see the brain as being Plato. But I have to mm-hmm. think about the concept of emotions being Plato, and that's kind of mm-hmm. cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: You sit on that one for a while. You come back, you come back on the program in, a, in but I, a promise,
1: I promise not to chew on the Play-Doh. <laughs> I'm, I'm much too big for that. Yeah, yeah. Don't eat the Play-Doh. <laughs> Seth, the, the, I, the last oh, thing I would say, just to follow up on that previous question, is you know this idea of what well, can children, how are children learning, what can they do? I would just sort of leave... Um, Listeners, with this idea that in fact we do everyday, very subtle things. We don't think about it in these terms, but there are many ways in which we start teaching children explicitly to pay attention to context in addition to behavior. And so we say things to little kids like, use your inside voice, or that's not how we behave at school, or that's the kind of thing we only talk about in our family. And so embedded in this, I don't know how much like little, kid, little preschoolers are actually encoding this, but what adults are doing in these ways is they are kind of um, scaffolding for children this idea that emotions and feelings and behaviors don't just exist, that they are modulated in some way based on where we are, who else is there, what the context or setting is. And so in those ways, we're actually like in our everyday conversations, really helping children build those skills for as we started talking about reading the room. Mm,
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, just just being cognizant of time, Seth, I really wanna get to a popular myth that is related to your work. uh, And that I've had recent conversations with other people about is how early life experiences Impact your later life. Does having, like you know, more adverse early life experiences, does that kind of sewer you for the rest of your life when it comes to emotion regulation and being able to read emotions?
1: No. (laughs) You know, I think part of this came from one of the things that's been super exciting is the use of biological methods to study early experiences and the idea that we can use methods like brain imaging and epigenetic methods and other kinds of physiology. And the idea of, you know, using biological measures to measure the effects of early life experiences has been very powerful. But the cost has been, uh, sometimes people think that if there's something biological, it means it's fixed. Like if, if there's an effect in the brain, if something's lighting up or not lighting up in the brain, that that means that brain is broken, that brain is kind of stuck. But there's nothing about biology that means fixed. Um, Biology can be plastic. Biology can change. Um, Neurons can grow. Uh, And so it's really important to remember that a biological effect is not a fixed effect. It's also important to remember things like it is true that uh, oftentimes when we study, for example, adults who abuse their children, we find that those children were abused themselves as adults. And that's true. Most abusive parents were abused themselves as children. However, only a small proportion of children who were abused end up growing up to be abusive parents. And so people often pick up on the one side and they think that the inverse is also true and it's not. It's very likely and often very common for children children that had very difficult childhoods to actually grow up and try very hard to be particularly sensitive and child-focused parents. And so we have to allow lots of, these are all probabilities that we're talking about. And so we have to remember to um, be really attentive to opportunities for change, individual differences, what individuals' circumstances are, and not assume that everything is going to just be fixed in place.
2: Right. I think it's, it's such an interesting topic that it reaches across a lot of areas, but I think often it's with, based on your relationships that you're exposed to, right? And I think that another example that I can think of is uh, being a child of divorced parents, right? I think that they often think that, you know, because you're from a divorced family, that you're more likely then to have divorces in the future or, or have failed relationships in the future. And I don't think that's necessarily the, tr-
1: the truth. <laughs> oh, well, that, I mean, I don't even, I don't know if we have time for that one, but I think the whole literature on the effects of divorce on children is just like it's just a great case study on how kind of the flavor of the month the current ideas end up influencing the way uh, data is interpreted and one can actually look almost to a T every 10 years how the same literature has been reinterpreted you know from in the 1950s and 60s the idea that oh well children are just damaged by the fact that they don't have a normal looking family yeah. um, to the idea that oh well it's not divorce it's the fighting that occurs prior it's not the divorce itself it's the interparental conflict prior to the divorce that messes up children to then the behavioral genetic idea that no it's not the fighting it's that when there's divorce there was a really difficult person in the relationship and that difficult person is affecting the child not the (laughs) divorce to now well none of that really works there's just tons of individual differences in variation and it's very hard there's no particular outcome associated with this and so it's just a great illustrative example of careful how you interpret your data
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, you might have the same data and have five different explanations, just like you may have the same smile that tells you a hundred different different things about how they're feeling, right?
1: Oh, well done. Nice <laughs> back to the beginning. Props to you. That was
2: awesome. <laughs> I try my best, and, and with that, we have to wrap this up because we know you're a busy man and you've got a million Zoom meetings today with all these UBC professors and, and students because you're a busy man and uh, a hot topic right now among UBC uh faculty and students so thank you so much for taking the time to have uh, to to entertain us and our viewers about human emotion I think it was an amazing conversation
1: this was really a delight and a pleasure I'm smiling uh, <laughs> and, uh, it was really a pleasure to talk with both of you thank you for having me as a guest I appreciate it oh thank so you yeah really appreciate it um, and with that, we'll we'll wrap this up. Make sure to follow
2: us if you haven't on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you consume your podcasts. We really do appreciate anybody that's felt, been following us up until this point. And uh, we are excited for the new year to see new listeners, new engagements, and have new guests on to talk about new work. Please reach out to us. Let us know how long you've been listening, what episodes you like the most, and what we can do in the future if there's anything that you want to see from Kyle and I. Uh, we'd love to hear from you. And that's it from us. We hope you have a wonderful day. Cheers.